Look, wasn't it great last week when we had Sarah come along and share her story, Sarah Jacoby, Matt's mum, and uh, what a great testimony to the way in which God had worked in them. Oh, by the way, I should introduce myself because I, I just assume people might know who I am, but if I don't, my name is Steve and I am one of the pastors on, at the church here. But, but going back to um, Sarah, yeah, what wonderful testimony of God's faithfulness and how she had learned to grow in her understanding of hearing the voice of God and acting upon it in obedience. And of course, it wouldn't be a Jacoby tale without all of the, the stories of the high seas, the nautical references and all of the rest of it. And there were plenty in there. I mean, Matt is our own LB Mangles. I mean, on a, on, a, on a ship sailing around Africa and up into Europe and document, you know, film crew on board, documentaries happening and the whole thing. I mean, what a, what a world. I mean, such a different world to me. I grew up in a public school, living in the suburbs in Bendigo, uh, going to a high school there, kicking a footy and doing whatever. I mean, that was my life, uh, a little bit different. But, but I'm not going to be outdone on the nautical references. So today, I'm going to give it my absolute best crack to match it with Matt in that space. So, But look, I must say the sum total of my sailing experience, unlike Matt, was I went with my crazy uncle, nicknamed Snags, work it out from there. But basically we went down to Bowen Heads. He'd never sailed before. We got on this little dinghy sailing ship um, thing and down we went down the Bowen River, uh, down, downwind going the great guns and then all of a sudden we obviously needed to be, get back up river again so we needed to turn that thing around. Well, that was where the fun started. Anyway, he swung the thing around and with that the winds caught the sail, flicked it around, the booms come around, hit me in the head, knock me over the side, I get tangled up in this rope thing that's meant to put the tension on the sail and the thing takes off down the river and I'm being dragged along by this rope by must have been something like 30 metres or so until I finally got myself free. So that is the sum total of my nautical experience. And, uh, but beyond that, thank you, I, I live to tell the tale, but beyond that, beyond that, the only thing that I, only exposure I have to sailing is when I'm listening to the Boxing Day test uh, every year, you know, I'm outside usually doing jobs, listening to that and this annoying cross that keeps happening on the ABC in the middle of the cricket coverage to this Blue Water Classic, the Sydney to Hobart yacht race. Now I'm sitting there wanting to hear the cricket. Instead, all I'm getting is this thing about Itchy Barn and Wild Oats. I mean, seriously, what is that? Wild Oats 11 and the whole, the whole thing's going on. And I'm thinking, man, this is annoying. Don't care. I'm just, take me back to the G. I want to hear the cricket. Now, as it was, 1998, in fact, was one of these Sydney to Hobart yacht races that actually will stand out in our memory forever. At the MCG, we're playing the Poms in the Ashes. And day one, Boxing Day, the, the Poms win the toss, they go in and they carve out 270 on day one. That's an okay score, but we're in with a fighting chance. At the same time, we're crossing over, doing this annoying thing, going over to the Sydney to Hobart yacht race. 115 yachts start, they all head out to the harbour and... It, then they had this great northeasterly wind, about 25, 35 knots, uh, just basically picking up the sails and taking them down the east coast of Australia. Everything's going hunky-dory. Day one. Day two of the ashes, Poms as hay are all out. Steve Ward's in the middle, absolutely bludgeoning them to every corner of the park, making his successive test centuries and again, crossing over to this annoying boat race. But anyway, as it turns out, for the first time, this boat race, this time, 1998, took on a very different turn. As they actually rounded the, rounded the uh, east coast beyond Eden and turning around the corner into the Bass Strait, there was a supercell storm that, had, that developed at that moment. 
and 80 knot winds of gusts came up and basically uh, stirred up massive seas in Bass Strait. And the storm wreaked, ha- wreaked havoc on, on um, all of those ships. Five boats actually sunk, seven were abandoned, 55 sailors had to be rescued in what was the biggest peacetime rescue mission that had ever taken place. There were aircraft, there were ships, there were all manner of things going on. Sadly, six sailors lost their lives. I'm just going to grab a tissue if you don't mind. Can you? Thank you. Six sailors lost their lives. And out of the 115 boats that actually started, thank you, Amy, appreciate that. Sorry. Out of the 115 boats that actually started, only 44 made it to Hobart. A whole bunch of them ended up going into Twofold Bay in Eden, if you're familiar with that part of the world, beautiful part of the world, and we often like to holiday there. But it was a stark reminder in what was not that long ago, just on 25 years ago now, it's still etched in my memory, I remember it vividly, of just how dangerous sea travel can be, even for a sublime little yacht race down the coast of Australia. And if you're actually wondering how the cricket turned out, we actually lost that test by 12 runs. (laughs) Never mind. But we actually went on to take the Ashes 3-1 in the series, so that was not all bad. But anyway, as we paint that picture of what it's like in the Sydney to Hobart yacht race, Today I'm going to take us to a passage in the book of Acts, at chapter 27 of Acts, where we're going to hear about the, the Apostle Paul's final journey by sea to, Ram, to Rome. If I'm to be perfectly honest, I've read this passage many times throughout the years, I always wonder, what is the relevance of this? You know, it's a p- nice piece of history. In fact, they say that it's, it's one of the most accurate and complete maritime records of the ancient world in a primary source that was ever written. So, you know, but I used to think, well, okay, that was, that's an interesting thing, but really what relevance does that have uh, to, to me or our lives right now? And actually, the more I've delved into it, I've found that it's in- increasingly relevant and I hope today they'll be able to bring some of that relevance to you through the word. But first, a bit of background before Paul actually ends up on the ship. The way he actually ended up there is he's in Jerusalem And he's proclaiming the word of God there and a few Jews get stirred up about the whole thing and so they basically trump up this uh, accusation against him that he's basically preaching heresy and also uh, performed this incredible act of sacrilege by bringing a Gentile into the temple. Now, none of that was actually true but they didn't let the facts get in the way of the story. And so they start this shambolic trial amongst this Jewish council and they decide that uh, there's an assassin- assassination plot that actually gets going uh, to kill Paul. But um, Paul's nephew gets wind of that, tells this Roman centurion who whisks Paul off in the middle of the night up to Caesarea. Now, Caesarea was like the, I guess, like our Melbourne. It was, it was basically the place we, in that region where all the real action took place. And Paul is before the Roman governor, Felix, and Felix is almost converted to Jesus. I mean, Paul tells him all about it and he, he's pretty persuaded. And, but then he, he panics and he actually sends Paul off to prison instead. And then Paul sits there for two whole years rotting in this prison. Felix then goes and another guy, this guy called Festus, comes in as governor. Now, Festus is a bit of a boneless, sorry, spineless uh, sort of uh, bureaucrat. And then he, but he's a guy who doesn't know, doesn't know what to put, do with Paul. So he then calls in this Jewish council. They come in, they stir it all up again, and they and it's pretty clear to Paul that this is a bit of a stitch up. So what they do is is, is Paul then uh, makes his appeal to Caesar because he knows that he's not going to get a fair trial. The process to get there is you actually first of all go to see the king, King Herod. 
King Herod II or Herod Agrippa. And it's, so it is that Paul's before Herod. Now Herod almost always, himself almost always, almost, I'm gonna start again, put my teeth back in, almost becomes a Christian himself as well. But, and he would have let him go, except that Paul's made his appeal to Caesar. So he says, okay, then off to Caesar, you must go. So here it is that Paul's consigned to a ship headed to Rome to stand before the emperor. So I'm going to put up a map showing the map, showing the, um, the trip itself. And you'll see here that Paul set out from Caesarea. They stop off at Sidon on the way, heading up the, the coast, round Cyprus, and then they basically head along the bottom of Asia Minor across to present day Turkey. And they stop off at a place called Myra. Now, when they get to Myra, a ship from Alexandra on the northern coast of Egypt, which you'll see at the bottom part of that map there, basically comes up. They join up with that ship and 276 people get on board, including prisoners, soldiers, um, sailors and the like, and a few paying passengers. And so it is that they set off from Myra and then they head towards this place called Snidus. So let's pick it up in Acts 27 and verse 7. It says, When we had sailed for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived off Snidus, since the wind did not permit us to go farther, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone and with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. So if I just still got the map there, if we can see that just again, just briefly, you'll see there that they've come to, come to uh, Myra, gone to Snidus, turned south, headed down under Cyprus and come to a place called Fair Havens. Now this is calm before the storm stuff. The reason why they headed south is that they weren't picking up any wind. Things were going pretty pretty well for them, but they just were struggling to get any traction. So they pull into this port called Fair Havens. So let's read on from verse nine. And when considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous since even the fast was already over. Now, just to pause there for a moment. The fast is a reference to what would have been the Day of Atonement, which occurs September, October-ish pretty late into the year to be sailing, in fact, as they head into the Northern Hemisphere's winter and when it was highly advisable not to travel. So here they are, the, the fast is already over and it's now quite dangerous, reading on. So Paul started admonishing them, saying to them, men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. See, Paul's actually warning the crew that they really should stay put in fair havens. And can you imagine these old salties? You know, here's Paul, he's a prisoner, he knows nothing about sailing, telling them that, hey, I perceive that, that we shouldn't head out from here. They would have basically pulled him, told him to pull his head in. But interestingly though, Paul said, I perceive. And there's a really interesting key in this because he is hearing a man who's filled with the Spirit, hearing the voice of God. And picking up, almost speaking prophetically into this situation, saying, I perceive that this is not going to go well. But of course, they weren't listening to him. But one thing that was happening for Paul in this moment, that he was at least building his credibility and his influence, even though he had zero positional power. Let's read on from verse 11. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than what was being said by Paul. Now, that's fair enough. You'd expect as much, wouldn't you? As I say, and, and as we would. I mean, it's not wrong to listen to the subject matter specialists, the people who are expert in their field. And we would do well to do the same, of course, but to a degree. Because we are also people indwelt by the Holy Spirit and God speaks to us. 
And even though we might take on advice and listen and draw on the wisdom of other people, sometimes the promptings of the Spirit may even go against conventional wisdom. But of course, it's not an exact science, but we need to be listening. Let's keep going from verse 12. The harbour, the harbour being Fairhavens that I referred to, it was not suitable for wintering, so the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbour of Crete facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So basically, they wanted to sail a little further along the, the coastline. But the, what's interesting is how they got to that point. Remember, they've rejected what Paul's got to say. They thought, look, you don't know what you're talking about. But what they do next, I reckon these people might have been Baptists, in fact, because they took a vote. They said it was, said, so the majority reached a decision. I reckon that was where they got this a little wrong as well. Not only did they not hear, listen to Paul, but like Baptists, they took a vote and they reached a majority decision. Mind you, not all decisions we make as Baptists are wrong. But the majority decision so often in the Bible never goes well. I can point you to a few examples. Remember the majority decision made by the children of Israel out in the wilderness after God had led them out under Moses and they get out there and things aren't going so well. What do they do? They all take a vote and they decide that, hey, we want to go back to Egypt. That did not go well. Another time they took a vote was a time when the the people of Israel wanted a king to rule over them. Do you remember that? And the prophet had actually said, you can have a king, but I can tell you now he's going to oppress you and he's going to exact taxes from you and it's not going to go well for you. But they said, but we still want a king. Majority vote didn't go well. And I remember one other majority vote, a day when Jesus was on trial and they actually voted to take a man called Barabbas and release him and crucify the Lord. Again, a majority vote. That was not a good thing, but God, of course, used it. So not only did this crew not listen to the prophetic direction from God, but they decided that they'd sort the issue out by seeing what everybody else thought. And of course, we're about to hear and the story that I shared of the the yacht race, they're about to hit a storm. You know, when we hit life's storms, we would do really well to listen to what God has got to say and not just listen to the mob. Let's read on verse 13. When a moderate south wind came up, thinking that they had attained their purpose, or another version said, they saw their opportunity, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete closer to shore. Now here's another lesson not what to, in what not to do. Not only do you not listen to the prophetic voice, not only do you not listen to the mob and, and take on the vote, but here they saw their opportunity. In other words, they were gunning for it. They decided that this was their time to actually go for it and probably against their better judgment. And so they lift anchor and off they go and decide they're going to make a run for another harbour further along Crete. If we go back to the map just briefly, if we may, please. You'll see there they've left Fairhavens and they're trying to come up along the bottom of Crete. But the only problem is they never actually make it. As they're making their way up along the, the lower end of Crete, they actually uh, get picked up by the wind and they're blown out into the Mediterranean Sea there. And so it is when we ignore the prophetic voice, when we take a majority vote, when we make an impulsive call without thinking of the implications, this is the sort of thing that can happen. And so my first main point to take from the story today is this. Learn to hear and obey the voice of God in the storm. 
Learn to hear and obey the voice of God in the storm. Because when a storm is going on, there are two things happening. There's the violent turbulence of the storm itself and then there's the quiet whisper of the Holy Spirit, of the voice of God. In life's storms, that violent turbulence, the, the upheaval, the things that happen that just unsettle us and throw us off course. But in the midst of that, God is speaking. We need to train ourselves to hear that quiet voice. Because the storm, even though it's louder, is not necessarily stronger. I'll say that again. The, the storm, even though it's louder, it's not, it doesn't mean that it's stronger. But you know, what we need to be doing as believers is we need to be cultivating what it means to hear the voice of God when we're in calm waters. So that when the storms come, we have learnt, we have trained ourselves to hear what God is saying. And it's better to be connected to God at all times when we're just walking through life than just waiting till that moment when everything goes pear-shaped. Because it's when we hit the storm, then we're able to successfully navigate our way through. My second point is this, then, is, is to anchor yourself in the storm. Let's read on. Before very long, a violent wind called Uroquilo rushed down from the land and when the ship was caught in it and could not head up into the wind, we gave up and let ourselves be driven by the wind. Running under the shelter of a small island called Corda, we were able to get the ship's boat under control only with difficulty. And after they had hoisted it up, they, was, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Certus, they let down the sea anchor and let themselves be driven along this way. The next day, as we were being violently tossed by the storm, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was assailing us, from then on all hope of our being saved was slowly abandoned. When here they are, they're wrapping cables around the hull. If you can think like those steel bands that they put around wine casks, basically trying to hold this thing together so it didn't peel open like a banana skin. And, and, and it was just as predicted by Paul, this storm had now overwhelmed them. And there's two really important things that come out of this passage. And the first thing they did in this passage was they, they dropped the sea anchors. Now, sea anchors are not like your conventional anchor that keep you put. They're, they're more like an underwater parachute. They're basically these things that they trail out the back of the, the ship. And the whole idea, it's almost like putting the brakes on uh, to slow you down and also to make sure that you've got some ballast at the rear of you to pull that ship around straight so that you can make a heading directly toward the waves rather than get turned broadside where you risk of capsizing. And so it is like us Christians, we too have sea anchors that we can drop, things to put the brakes on, things that provide ballast and steady us when, when the pressure's on. Sea anchors like Philippians 4.6, which says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. That's a good sea anchor right there. Cling on to it. Here's another one, Romans 8, 38 to 39. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
They're sea anchors that you can drop when the storms of life hit. So anchor yourself in the storm. That's my second point. Anchor yourself in the storm. Faith anchors that you can drop in those moments. Now I mentioned there were two important things they did. Firstly, they dropped the sea anchors. The next thing they did, which I read before in verses 18 and 19, let's look at that again. Which says, as we were being violently tossed by the storm, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. So here they are, they jettisoned the cargo. Basically what they were doing was unloading absolutely everything that, didn't, that, that was going to weigh them down. Essentially, there was some reprioritising going on as they began to let go of all of those things. So the third thing I'd like to bring out of today's passage is this. In the storms, cast off those things that don't matter. Isn't it amazing how storms in life have a way of resetting our priorities? When you hear story after story of people who've gone through difficulty and when they've faced various crises of various kinds, they, all the things that occupied their minds beforehand no longer seemed quite as important. They reprioritise things like family and church and quite often and more importantly, their relationship with God. And it's times when, these are the times when we get serious about what really matters and we cast off those things that don't, just like these sailors did. So cast off that what doesn't matter. The fourth point, and there are five, so we're getting toward the end. The fourth point is this, relinquish control to God. See, not only did this crew get rid of the cargo, but they also chucked overboard all the ship's tackle. So things like the rigging, the pulleys, the ropes, all the things that they needed to control the ship. They knew that in the storm it was absolutely useless even trying to uh, have a, hold on to those things. They could do nothing in the midst of the storm. They had to relinquish control and just let the, the ship take its course in the storm. And so it is for us in life when we hit the storms, we must relinquish control. We relinquish control to God. It's absolutely crucial if we want to navigate our way through the most terrible of circumstances. And again, that doesn't happen just necessarily when you get to the storm. Learning to let go and let God is something that we treat, teach ourselves as we walk through life. It's a progressive thing as we learn bit by bit that God can be trusted. Even when we don't understand. And in fact, I'd go so far as to say, especially when we don't understand. It means trusting less in our own resources and our own resolve to pull us through and just surrendering ourselves to God's hand. That's my fourth point, relinquish control to God when in the storm. Now just a brief word on the side about storms themselves. I think there's a, there's a fascinating scripture in the little prophetic book of Nahum. Nahum chapter one, verse three. It's only three chapters long, that book. And it's, it really tells us that storms are actually both inevitable and we all need them. And it tells us this very thing about God. It says this, the way of the Lord is in the whirlwind and in the storm. The way of the Lord is in the whirlwind and in the storm. It's not really one of those feel-good passages, is it? But it's not one that we like to meditate on too much, but because we rather like calm conditions, right? The, the steady current, the gentle breeze. We rather like smooth sailing, do we not? But the only issue, just as it was for these sailors when they're going up along the coast of Asia Minor, they were getting nowhere. 
in the calm waters. It was only when the wind picked up that they actually went somewhere because before they were making zero progress. And it's only as as we face the whirlwinds of life, storms of, of interruptions and irritations, whirlwinds like disasters and, and diseases. God appoints those storms and we all need them and we all experience them. Going back to the passage again, verse 20. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was assailing us from then on, all hope of our being saved was slowly abandoned. These guys at this point are completely discouraged. They'd lost all hope of being saved. And not only so, it's these guys who needed the sun and the stars to navigate, they've gone. They didn't have GPS, they didn't have radar, they didn't have sonar, they didn't have any of those things. They didn't even have a compass. They were still a thousand years away. If they didn't have the sun and the, and the stars to navigate by, they had no sense of where they were and as the storm raged around them. And we too can feel like that, yes, in, in, when the storms of life are raging. We have no sense of where we are and we can become quite discouraged. Verse 21. And when they had lost their appetites, effectively they were sick to their stomach, probably from seasickness, but also probably through stress and worry and anxiety. Paul then stood among them and said, men, you should have followed my advice. That was his told you so moment. Probably not the best call right then. But you should not have set sail from Crete and thereby spared yourself this damage and loss. But here I've mentioned before about Paul's credibility growing. When he obeyed the voice of God early and spoke up, even though they didn't listen to him, it was his opportunity right now to stand up. Paul the prisoner on this ship has now become Paul the pilot. It's interesting, isn't it? When the whips are cracking, real leadership starts to stand up and the things of God, as he shines through, come out of us. And hear what Paul says next, verse 22. And yet now I urge you to keep your courage for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, an angel of the the God to whom I belong, whom I also serve, came to me saying, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has graciously granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep your courage, men, for I believe that God... Believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on a certain island. So, okay, the, the message perhaps is not exactly what they wanted to hear. They were going to be shipwrecked, but at least it wasn't all bad either. They were all going to get out with their life. And Paul had confidence in the chaos because this angel had appeared to him. And this wasn't the first time. In fact, when he was in Jerusalem, in prison, back when I referenced before, during the night, we're told that the Lord stood near him, that's Paul, and said, be courageous for, I, for you as you have testified to the truth about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome also. He'd had the word of God, the rhema word of God, the quickened, exact personal word from God. And so he was, could stand firm in that. So that's my, first, my fifth and final point is stand firm in your calling if you want to have confidence in the chaos. So anyway, to summarise, everything happens as it said it would. They run aground, no one loses their life and Paul finally makes it to Rome, all as God said it would. And I welcome the worship team to come back. I just want to finish with this point. Is when we're in the midst of the storm, it, must, it seems like an eternity, but have confidence, the storm will eventually end, just as it did for these guys. 
I want to take us to Psalm 107, where it says something very significant, which I think is directly applicable to this passage. It says, those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep, for he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens, they go down again to the depths, their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like drunken men and are at their wit's end. That's like these guys in the ship that sometimes like us, we stagger. We reel to and fro, we're like drunken men at our wit's end. But you know what, that's not where the story ends in Psalm 107. We read on. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble and He brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. And then they are glad because they are quiet. So He guides them to their desired haven. You know, when we're in the middle of the storm, it's a tough place to be. It seems like it'll never end. We're sick with anxiety and stress and worry. But if we'll learn to obey and hear the voice of God, if we anchor ourselves in the storm, if we cast off the things that don't matter anymore, if we relinquish control to God, and if we stand firm in our calling, we will make it through. You can have confidence in the midst of the chaos. When God has worked His purpose out of the storm, He's gonna lead us once more into a safe haven and we'll be far, far stronger for the experience. And finally, Psalm 107 concludes this way. This is my exhortation to every one of us today. Oh, that the men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness, women included, and for His wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt Him also in the assembly of the people and praise Him in the company of the elders. Today, that's my exhortation. Let's together stand up. Let's praise God together. Let's give Him thanks. Let's do that. Let's proclaim the faithfulness and the goodness of God together. Amen. Amen.